Good morning. It's a delight to open God's Word with you this morning. I wonder if you've ever noticed how difficult it is to talk about the things that are most important. I wonder if you've noticed this in your conversations. Your conversations with people you love. Your conversations with those around you. How easy it is to talk about the things of least importance and how hard it is to talk about the things of greatest importance. Have you ever wondered about this? Wondered why that is? I wonder if you've noticed on a Sunday morning, after hearing a message from God's Word, how easy it is to turn from considering eternal things to talking about last night's game as soon as the sermon is over. How easy it is to talk about the Super Bowl, which is coming soon, in just a few hours, than considering eternity. Why do you think this is? What is it about us that makes us so reticent, so slow to talk about the things of most importance and so quick to talk about the smallest of things in light of eternity? I'm sure there are lots of answers to this question. I think at least one of the answers to this question is simply culture. I'm not sure what your cultural background is. Whether you come from a Hispanic background, a, an Asian background, or another kind of American background, I've, I sense that almost every culture finds that it is difficult to talk about the things of utmost importance. Perhaps it is culturally conditioned that we learn what it is that is appropriate and inappropriate to talk about, that we learn about the subjects that are taboo and the ones that are approved. Growing up, it seemed common that you were never to be talking about politics or religion because those things would divide. Those things would cause people to get heated and would cause debates and anger. And so we wouldn't talk about those kinds of things because we don't want to stir up division. But do you notice that when it comes to God's word, that God actually talks about the things that are most important front and center, and the things that are most important, he repeats over and over again. Our passage this morning is Proverbs chapter 7, and it may surprise you that we are going to be talking again about the subject that has caught up our attention Week after week, it seems, in the book of Proverbs. And that is the subject of the temptation of sexual immorality. I, um, I confess that when I began preparing my sermon at the beginning of this week, I was a little hesitant because I thought, oh no, again, here we are, talking about what seems like the same thing week in and week out. But do you notice that there is something counter-cultural counter happening in the book of Proverbs that pushes against what is natural and normal for us? The things that we don't want to talk about, the writer of Proverbs continues talking about. The things that we are slow to talk about and discuss with one another, with even our children, are the things that the father in Proverbs repeats over and over again and keeps front and center you see that there is a, a priority shift that should be happening for us as we draw near to God and listen to Him in His Word. That there should be a shifting in our own sense of priorities 
considering what is most important. And even as in our passage, what is most dangerous in this world? Our passage here in the book of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 7, comes in the book of Proverbs, which is a book of wisdom in the Old Testament. And the book of Proverbs is God's education course in true wisdom. God's education course in true wisdom. And in the book of Proverbs, in these first nine chapters, what we have is a conversation between a wise father and a young son. And in this conversation, the father is holding out for his son the importance of wisdom, holding out for his young and foolish and inexperienced son something of the wisdom of God that speaks into this fallen world and shows us the path that leads to life and shows us the dangers that would draw us away onto a path that leads to death. If you have your Bibles with you, open with me to the book of Proverbs, chapter 7. And I'm going to be reading through our passage as we begin. If you're taking notes, let me hold out for you our main point this morning. If you're taking notes, the main point this morning from our passage, which you can keep in mind as I read, is this. Adultery is is soul-destroying sin against God. Adultery is soul-destroying sin against God. And we'll be breaking up our passage into three points this morning. Adultery is soul-destroying sin against God. Three points. Point number one from verses one to nine. Wisdom is life-giving. Point number one, verses one to nine. Wisdom is life-giving. Point number two, from verses 10 to 20, temptation is deceiving. Point number two, verses 10 to 20, temptation is deceiving. And point number three, verses 21 to 27, adultery is soul-destroying. Point number three, verses 21 to 27, adultery is soul-destroying. Wisdom is life-giving, temptation is deceiving, adultery is soul-destroying. And I hope this is helpful for you as we walk through this passage and consider what God's Word has to tell us about the sin of adultery. Let's read Proverbs 7. This is God's Word. My son, keep my words and treasure up my commandments with you. Keep my commandments and live. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister. Say uh, and call insight your intimate friend to keep you from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words. For at the window of my house I have looked out through my lattice and I have seen among the simple, I have perceived among the youths, a young man lacking sense passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house in the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night and darkness. And behold, the woman meets him dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. She is loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home, now in the street, now in the market. And at every corner she lies in wait. She seizes him and kisses him. And with bold face she says to him, I had to offer sacrifices, and today I have paid my vows. So now I have come out to meet 
you, to seek you eagerly. And I have found you. I have spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from Egyptian linen. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. For my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him. At full moon, he will come home. With much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter, or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver. As a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. And now, O sons, listen to me. And be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. For many a victim has she laid low. And all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol. Going down to the chambers of death. As we begin point number one. Wisdom is life-giving. We see here at the beginning of our passage that the Father repeats language that He's been repeating from the beginning, from Proverbs chapter 1. We see that in each of the dialogues here, they are marked off with an intro section at the beginning of each dialogue with the same kinds of commands and encouragements and the same kinds of warnings. Flip back, if you will, to... Chapter 6, look at 6 and verse 20. And keep another eye here at chapter 7, verses 1 to 5. And look at the same things that are being repeated section by section. My son, keep your father's commandment. Forsake not your mother's teaching. Bind them on your heart always. Tie them around your neck. When you walk, they will lead you. When you lie down, they will watch over you. When you awake, they will talk with you. For the commandment is a lamp, the teaching a light, and the reproofs of discipline are the way of life to preserve you from the evil woman from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. And then look at our passage, how similar it is. My son, keep my words, treasure up my commands with you, keep my commandments and live, keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them here on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister, call insight, your intimate friend, to keep you as well from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words. The father is repeating He's mixing it up a bit, but he's repeating and repeating the same ideas over and over again. There are things that he wants to be sure that his young son will not forget. So he says it day in and day out. He says it from conversation to conversation. These things that he is repeating. He's drawing language from the law in the Old Testament. Chapters uh, from Genesis to Deuteronomy. And he is putting them in his own words putting them in words that his son can understand, and he's repeating them over and over again. Look at the things that he is saying to his son. He's saying to to keep or obey my words with his actions. And not only that, he says to treasure up these commandments with you. That is, to fill his mind and his heart with this truth. To not just do it rotely out of obedience to his father, but to have in his heart God's commands and God's truth to fill his mind with them so that they are there when he faces temptation, 
You see that at the beginning of our passage, a passage that focuses in on temptation, there is a preparation that needs to take place. There is the promise of the life-giving power of God's wisdom to give life, to sustain life, to point us ultimately to the path that leads to life. And that this is given as the Father as preparation for the day when the Son finds Himself in a place of temptation. That he is to be ready as he understands truth and learns truth and is reminded of truth day in and day out with these conversations that happen between the Father and the Son. Look at verse 2. This promise, if you keep the Father's commandments, which are repeating of God's commandments, you will live. That is, if you follow God's word, if you listen to his word, if you find the promises in God's word, believe them and then live in them, you will have life evermore. And then there's this command to keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. It's an interesting phrase, one that's used uh, particularly in the Old Testament. The apple of the eye seems to be that reflection when you look at someone in the face close up, the reflection of yourself that you see in someone else's eye. The idea is you see a reflection back in that little circle of your pupil. When you look at someone in the face, that tells you what it is that you're looking at because it's reflected back when you're looking straight at it. The idea here is that the teaching, God's teaching, the teaching of God that comes from the parents is to be the focus of the son's eye. He should have his eyes focused on the truth of God's word. And not only should he be focusing on them, verse Three, he is to be doing whatever it takes to remember them. He's to be binding them on his fingers, writing them on the tablet of your heart. You see here that there's the command both for something external, some external way to remember, as well as something internal. It's to be written on our heart, whether that's through memorization or meditation on God's word, but to be deeply written on our hearts and minds so that we will not forget it, but yet also finding some practical external way to remember these things. Maybe writing a verse on your hand in pen. Doing whatever it takes to remember the truth. And then verse 4, interesting. He says, say to wisdom, you are my sister. And call insight your intimate friend. In the the Song of Solomon, the, the, the lover, the husband says to his wife, you are my beloved. He says to her, you are my sister. There is now another connection between wisdom personified as a woman that we've seen all along, this life-giving woman, whether it's a mother who gives life to her children by giving them birth and sustaining them through nourishment. Uh, He also says in in, in some of the earlier chapters that wisdom is to be embraced like a, a wife who gives life to her husband by caring for him, loving him, and sustaining him. Here, then, the connection is with another family-woman relationship. Wisdom is to be embraced as a sister who will care for you, who will give life to you and encourage you. And then he says, call insight your intimate friend. That is, you are to embrace wisdom and love the truth and love wisdom and find in wisdom a life-giving source. And then you see in verse 5 that the goal, the result of all of this treasuring up of wisdom is protection from a particular temptation, the temptation to sexual immorality. Immorality is 
seen, the, the temptation to immorality is seen in the particular form in our passage of the forbidden woman, seen specifically in this example as the adulteress. In other words, the father, as he considers their context that they're in, when he looks around and considers how it is practically that his son may be led astray into sexual immorality, what he has in mind is perhaps a married woman who would encourage and even lead a young man into adultery, a time when her husband is not at home and she desires pleasure and she seeks it by pursuing a young man. Now, what what is interesting is that as we think about temptation, I'm not sure the source that we might consider it would come from for us in our day and age or in our city. I think if we would think about how it is that we might be tempted to sexual immorality, it may look different than what it did with this father in the ancient Near East, in Palestine, uh, in the time of 1000 BC. In our day and age, we have access to sexual temptation from many more different sources. I think when we think about sexual immorality, we may think in our day and age of prostitution, perhaps of strip clubs here in L.A., massage parlors, or through the Internet, through social media, through websites, all kinds of virtual access to sexual temptation that comes to us, that can come to us on our computers, even on the phones in our pockets. We can have access to sexual temptation in ways that this father couldn't have imagined. But that doesn't make the temptation any less real or any less serious. You notice that the emphasis here in the book of Proverbs on sexual temptation repeated over and over again is something that should draw our attention. We should notice the content emphasis in the book of Proverbs on sexual temptation. It should draw our attention how much the father speaks with his son about sexual temptation. And we should take a clue from this. This emphasis tells us a few things about sexual temptation. It tells us that sexual temptation is a widespread temptation. It is not limited to a few. It is a temptation of the many of us. It should also teach us that sexual temptation is a temptation with great attraction and power. For all of us, this emphasis should also teach us that the sin is a great sin and brings with it devastating consequences. If this is true, we should follow the advice of this father to his son. We should follow even the example of this father to his son and do likewise. We should allow in our conversations, time and room for conversations about our temptations and particularly our sexual temptations. What does this mean for us practically? How do we do such a thing practically? How do we give room in our conversations to talk about sexual temptation? Well, we need to, at the very least, begin by reading God's Word and reading these warnings, filling our hearts and our minds with Scripture and with truth. We should listen to what God has to say about sex which He's designed and which is a good gift to be enjoyed by His people. 
but yet understand how he talks about it first and foremost. We should then have a watch on our own heart, study our own hearts and tendencies, find out where it is that we are most tempted and what ways that we are most drawn in and what about it that is most attractive to us. We should try to get our finger on what it is that draws us to it so that we know our hearts. And then we should speak to others about the areas in which we are prone to temptation. We should talk openly with trusted brothers and sisters, fellow members of the church, so that we can help each other fight this sin. We should not only talk about it with fellow members, we should, if we're parents, talk about it with our children. We need to be preparing our children for the day when they go out and in this world face temptation. And we should take drastic steps to do whatever it takes to fight such temptation. We should take extreme steps to work to make sure that we are not drawn into this temptation, to find where we're weak, to find where we're prone. Not take half measures, but full measures to do whatever it takes to be sure that this sin does not draw us away from God onto the path that leads to death. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 to 30, if your eye offends you, pluck it out. If your hand offends you, cut it off. It is better to enter into the kingdom blind than to never make it into the kingdom and be cast out of his presence. What is Jesus saying there? Is he saying to literally cut out your eye or literally cut off your hand? Well, no, I don't think so. But at the very least, what he is saying is you need to see sin as soul-destroying and worthy of condemnation and do whatever drastic step it takes to, to sap sin of its power. But the emphasis that we have here on sexual immorality should also teach us another thing should teach us that we as God's people should not be surprised when we hear of sexual sin. That sin, sexual nature, should not surprise us. We see it right here in God's Word. He told us about it. He told us of its danger and of its attraction. So it shouldn't surprise us when we hear of people dealing with sexual temptation or even fellow brothers in Christ who are falling into sexual sin. It shouldn't surprise us. And we should be a compassionate, loving Encouraging people who walk a very fine line as God's people in a fallen world. We should be the kinds of people who on the one hand take sin unbelievably seriously. Who on the one hand take sin so seriously that we fight hard against it. But at the same time are compassionate and kind for any sinner who comes out of all kinds of sin, if they are willing to repent of their sins and trust in Christ. We should be the kind of hospital for sinners that God has designed His church to be. We should be a loving, holy people who take sin seriously, but yet also love sinners who are willing to come to Christ and be forgiven. We should follow the example of Christ who was willing to spend time with tax collectors and sinners, with former prostitutes 
and evil people of all kinds. And when, and when the religious leaders of his day, who were wise in their own eyes, and who thought of themselves as more righteous than they were, when they looked down on him for this, he said, I have not come for the sick. Or I'm sorry, I have not come for the well, but for the sick. So that they too might find healing and forgiveness. Look to verses 6 to 9 here in our first point. The father begins an illustration, an, an anecdote. Like any good teacher, he looks for illustrations to help make the, the truth, the, the reality, come home for his son. He begins an illustration here in verses 6 to 9. He says, at the window of my house, I've looked out through my lattice, and I've seen something. He reports this thing that he's seen. A young man, among the simple, among the youths, a young man lacking sense, who was walking, passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house in the twilight in the evening, at the time of night and darkness. He begins his illustration by saying what it is that he sees. You see, first, as he lays the setting for this story, you see first uh, the, the characters that are here. The character, the first character that's talked about is actually further up in verse 5. This forbidden woman, this adulterous woman, is the first character of the story. He refers to her as her there in verse 8, but he's referencing back to verse 5. And then we have as the second character in this story, this young, simple man. The simple man, or the young man, this young man lacking sense, is the person that the whole first nine chapters of the book of Proverbs is aimed towards. If you flip back to Proverbs chapter 1, as this book is introduced, the goal of the book is to know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing and righteousness, justice and equity. To give prudence, verse 4, to the simple knowledge and discretion to the youth. You see here that the father is speaking to his young son, and he's holding out as an example a similar young man who is simple, lacking sense. The simple person is a character that comes out in the book of Proverbs. As Proverbs has these different characters or caricatures of the kinds of people that you find in this world. As you think of the different kinds of people that you have in this world, the simple person is the young person. He's foolish, but he isn't yet a fool. Because a fool is someone who has gone down farther on this path that leads to death and has actually hardened himself from listening to the truth and from wisdom. The simple person is the uncommitted, inexperienced young man. He's gullible and he's foolish, but he hasn't yet ultimately decided what path he's going to take. And so he's in a dangerous position because he's easily led astray. He is gullible. But there's also hope for the simple person if he's willing to be led by truth and wisdom. This simple young man who is inexperienced, we see here, verse 8, is in the wrong place, the street near her corner, at the road to her house. And he's there at the wrong time, verse 9, in the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night and darkness. You can know where the story is going to go simply by the setting. This young man, he's foolish. 
He's gullible. He's easily led astray. And he's put himself in a vulnerable position. He's, he's put himself in the wrong place, near her house and near her corner, on her road, the path that leads to her house. And he's put himself there at the wrong time, at twilight, at nighttime, in the dark, the time when sin runs rampant. You notice here at the very beginning of our passage on temptation that the Father emphasizes for us that there is something even before giving in to sin that actually precedes it. We can either listen to the wisdom that God has given to us and we can meditate on the truth that He's given to us, memorize it and prepare ourselves to keep ourselves far away from sin, or we can put ourselves in a vulnerable position where we are going to be even tempted in an even greater manner. We see here that the Father sets the stage by helping His Son realize that there are times and places where we will be more tempted than at other times and places. And that there must be a preparation that takes place for such a time as this. As we consider this, think through some applications for us as Christians. Let me encourage you, Christian, to not put yourself in situations where you know you will be tempted. Let me encourage you, Christian, to not put yourself in a place where you know you will be vulnerable. There is a flirtation that happens with sin before we are tempted and finally give in to it that we can play with. Let me encourage you, Christian, do not flirt with sin, but do whatever you can to stay as far away from temptation's allure. Let me encourage you, Christian, to know yourself and your weaknesses, to study your heart, your mind, your struggles and your tendencies and to protect your vulnerabilities. I had an encouraging conversation uh, last week with a, a brother who told me that he felt that he was in a season of temptation, and so he told me he was filling up his schedule every night to try to spend time with God's people so that he wouldn't be tempted. I love that. That's a wonderful example for us. If you know you're vulnerable, take drastic steps to keep yourself from being drawn away into sin. Me encourage us as well as Christians to be pursuing the simple and the young among us. To be pouring into the young people, the, the children and the youth, even in our con- congregation. To realize that there is an opportunity with these young ones to help to steer them on the path of wisdom. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 14, Paul tells the Thessalonian Christians to help the weak. We should be the kinds of people as Christians who seek to help the weak, who don't look down on them for their weakness, but seek to help them, to encourage them, and to take practical steps to help them fight sin. We should also cultivate humility among uh, us as a church, knowing that even the worst kind of sin, As the Puritan pastor Richard Baxter put it, there but for the grace of God go I. We should have the kind of humility as a church where we see in sin 
something in our own hearts that would easily be there except for the grace of God, even sins that we don't struggle with. And let me encourage you, older Christians, to share the experiences of your life helping foster wisdom in the young people. Let me encourage you young people to be pursuing older people and to find in their stories about life, about their own sin and their, uh, their own walk, that you can learn from their experience and learn from their mistakes and avoid them. The last thing I will say this morning is, parents, we have a tendency when we think of a story like this to think that it's our job to protect our kids, to keep them from being in a position of vulnerability where they'll be tempted, to think that we can somehow close the world out and enclose them into a place of safety where they'll never be tempted or hurt or affected by sin. There is something wise about wanting to protect our children. It's one of the jobs God has given to us as parents. But do you notice that before this young man even gets to the point where he's tempted, that there is something inside of him that makes sin attractive? It is the sin that dwells in all of our hearts. Your children are not innocent. No, all of us have fallen in Adam and Eve when they fell When they ate the fruit in the garden and rebelled against God, all of us fell with them. And all of us are now in a position of sin where we are all not just prone to sin, but sinners through and through. And we desire sin. And there is no walls or doors that can keep sin out because it's inside of us. And it's our job not to simply protect our kids, but to prepare them by talking with them about sin and about temptation, about salvation and redemption, and about the power that is available to us through the resurrection of Christ to fight all manner of sin. That's point number one. Wisdom is life-giving. Point number two, temptation is deceiving. More quickly, point number two, temptation is deceiving. Look now, beginning at verse 10, and look at how this temptation happens. You you think of all of the different ways in which this temptation enters the the unsuspecting or perhaps suspecting youth as he is drawn into this temptation to adultery. Look, she meets him, verse 10. And the first thing that he says about this adulterous woman is that she's dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. We see first that his sight is drawn to her beauty as she dresses in a way to allure him. Her clothing is a demonstration of what's going on in her heart. She has a wily heart seeking to catch him, and so she dresses in a way to do that. And she's drawn in. He's drawn in by the sight of her beauty. Look, too, at verses 11 and 12. She's loud and wayward. Her feet don't stay at home. She's now in the street, now in the market. At every corner, she lies in wait. Here is an example of a, a wicked woman. There's passages earlier in the book that talk about the wicked men that will draw others away. Here is a demonstration of a wicked woman. Look at what she does next. Not only does she present herself to him with her beauty, dressed a certain way, but then verse 13, she touches him. So not only is his sight attracted, but now through touch he's attracted. She seizes him. She kisses him. 
And then not only her, his eyes and his touch, but also his ears. She seizes him, kisses him with bold face. She begins speaking to him. And now his ears are affected with words that cut against the truth that he's heard. And look at what she promises, verse 14. I had to offer sacrifices, and today I've paid my vows. Now, it looks like this is a reference to meat, that she's been at the temple. She's offered sacrifices, and so she has meat at home. What she's saying is, I have good food for you. So now it is the temptation of taste. However, there may be more going on here. It may be that she's actually holding out for him. Look, I'm a, I'm a religious girl. I've been worshiping God. This sin of sexual immorality can't be that bad if I'm a, a religious woman. And we see not only in this passage, but throughout the Old Testament and even the New, the temptation of sexual immorality and sin being couched under an umbrella of religiosity. God's people were drawn away into sexual immorality and adultery, both physical and spiritual, as they walked away from the worship of God. Drawn into worship and religion, led them astray as she colors what they're doing under a picture of religious, uh, of religiosity. Then look at verse 15. She says, I've now come to meet you, to seek you eagerly, and I have found you. She flatters him. Her words continue with flattery. She says, I'm attracted to you. I respect you. I value you. And she flatters him, which is attractive. And then there's the promise in 16 and 17 of the comfort of the touch of a, a, a bed and the smell and the sense of perfumes. And then we have in verse 18 the promise that there will be love Let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. There's the promise of satisfaction. And now it's coloring something that's clearly lust with the color of love. Confusing what is really lust. Taking what we want. A gift from God, but yet twisted and taken out of context. And calling it love. There is so much confusion in our world today. And what needs to take place is a clear distinction between lust and love. Lust in the Bible is the opposite of love, not a form of it. What lust does is lust takes. Love gives. What lust does is it says, I want what I want on my terms and my timetable, and I'm going to take it for myself in order to enjoy it and find pleasure. And that's the opposite of love. No, love gives for the good and for the pleasure of the beloved one. Love delights in bringing joy and pleasure to the beloved. Lust takes, but there is a danger of believing that the temptation to sexual immorality is actually love. And it is a dangerous form of temptation, painting lust with love's colors. And then we have in verse 19 and 20, a promise. A promise of no consequences. My husband is far away. He's not at home. He's on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him. He's going to go do lots of business. 
He's not going to come back till the full moon. The promise of enjoying the pleasures of sin without any consequences. Here we have the deceiving nature of temptation. Temptation is deceiving. You see how confusing temptation becomes. How much lies are mixed in with things that are true or partially true or half true. You notice that all temptations, which come from Satan and from his minions, that all temptation does this. It takes things that are good, gifts from God. It doesn't create anything new. What sin does is it twists the good gifts from God and seeks to have them outside of his plan and design for us. And the same thing that Satan was doing in the garden in Genesis chapter 3, the same thing that Jesus did with, sorry, that Satan did with Jesus when he tempted him, as we heard about in Matthew chapter 4 this morning, is the same thing that's happening here. There is a twisting of reality that's taking place in the midst of this temptation scene. Promises that aren't true, offers that aren't real, lies painted as truth. This is what happens in temptation. Temptation deceives us. Temptation leads us into sin, giving us all kinds of promises. But they are promises that cannot deliver. Our hope in the midst of temptation like this is none other than our Savior, Jesus Christ. As we heard about this morning, the temptation from Matthew chapter 4 that Satan um, that Satan took, uh, that Satan did when it came to Christ in Matthew chapter four and the other gospels. The temptation that happened there is a a wonderful picture for us of what Jesus did when he came to Earth. Jesus, it says, was tempted in all ways, like as we are, yet without sin. What Jesus did when he was tempted is he persevered through the temptation. He took the wisdom and the truth that he had stored up, that he had treasured up within him, and he used the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, to fight the temptation that Satan brought. He spoke truth into the deception, and each time Satan came with a temptation, offering something good, or what appeared to be good, he saw it for what it was and combated the temptation with the truth. And Jesus stood up through the temptation, every time that we fall down. Jesus persevered in the teeth of temptation and never once gave in. And in this way, He is now able to help us stand up in temptation because He did it before us. He did it for us. And He did it for those of us who know Him, who have repented of our sins and trusted in Christ, His perfect righteousness in His life and His death on the cross in our place. For those of us who trust in Him, we can now follow in His example, standing up in the midst of temptation and calling temptation the lie that it is. That's point number two. Temptation is deceiving. Point number three, and last and more quickly, adultery is soul-destroying. Verses 21 to 27. You see what happens. The summary there in verse 21, with much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. You see the words that are 
combating here. The truth that he hears at the beginning, the son, and then the persuasion of the words of this temptress in verse 21. And then we see in verse 22 what happens. Now up to this point, he's tempted, but he hasn't yet given in. A point needs to be made that temptation is not sin. To be tempted is not to sin. To to be tempted is to be enticed by sin, but sin takes place once we give in to it. It is not a sin to be tempted, but here, verse 22, he follows her. He listens to her. He gives in and believes her lies. And look at the consequence, the, the result of this. More illustrations, an ox going to the slaughter, a stag or a deer that's caught in a trap, an arrow piercing its liver, a bird rushing into a snare and being caught. And even though he doesn't know what it's going to cost him, it will cost him his life. Verse 23. And now we have the warning, verses 24 to 27. And now, sons, listen to me. Be attentive to the words of my mouth. Do not let your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. For many a victim has she laid low. All her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. We see here now that the father is mixing this illustration of the adulterous woman, a specific story that he saw and shares, and then also connecting it with what becomes an image or a metaphor for this sexual temptation, this forbidden woman or adulterous woman. She becomes now a metaphor for everyone who is tempted by such sexual immorality. And she then has many victims. A whole throng have been slain by her. Now, this isn't saying that women as a category are bad or that every woman is a temptress. That's not true. But it is saying that this temptation to sexual immorality is a great one, and it leads so many astray. And so this danger is great, and we must be aware of it. As you consider the consequences that this father lays out to his son, this soul-destroying nature of the consequences of such sexual sin, I wonder if you have your own examples of the kinds of consequences that come from such sexual immorality, particularly the sin of adultery. I wonder if you have examples in your own mind of ways that you've seen the devastating consequences of sexual sin. I think of some of the examples that I know of. A daughter finding out after her father has passed away reading his emails and text messages that he was unfaithful to her mother. Finding out later in life that the home that she thought she had was a lie. That the father that she respected and looked up to was not the man that he presented himself as being. Perhaps it is a child finding out when he or she is older that he has not only brothers and sisters, but other half-siblings that he didn't know about or she didn't know about. That there is more going on behind the presentation of the home that they thought they were raised in. That is false. You think of the devastating nature of this. Many know this. You think of a pastor having to stand up before a congregation 
confess his affair or his unfaithfulness and the devastating consequences that that has, not just in the life of the pastor, though that is great, or the life of the pastor's wife, which is great, or of the pastor's children, which is great, but on the people of God who now question everything. Can we trust the message from a man who lives this way? Can we trust in this Jesus that this person has preached if they live their life this way? All of the devastation that takes place with such sexual sin. As much devastation as sexual immorality has, let me encourage you from 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Turn there with me as we close. I know for some of us, the devastation is outside of us. For some of us, the devastation is inside of us. For we have been the unfaithful. We have been the immoral. Look at how the Apostle Paul walks this fine line in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. He says, 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 9, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. You think of the consequences of sin. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. Let that sit for a minute. These are the kinds of sins that characterize the people that will be destroyed. And yet, look at what he says in verse 11, talking about these Corinthian brothers and sisters in Christ. And such were some of you. And such were some of you. That is, there were some of you Corinthians who were all of these things, sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers. Men who practice homosexuality, thieves, greedy, drunkards, revilers, swindlers. Those who were not inheriting the kingdom of God. But you were those things. You're not those things anymore. Why? Verse 11. You were washed by the blood of Christ. You were sanctified by the Holy Spirit and set apart to God as his own. Children, his own precious possession. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Such were some of you. As you think about your own temptation, whether it's to sexual sin or something else this morning, know, as a sister told me recently, there's hope for healing in this life. There is hope for healing and deliverance and forgiveness in this life. But, as we learned last week, can we play with fire and not get burned? No. But there is hope for forgiveness, healing and change in this life. Jesus' mercy is more, more than our sin. The temptation to adultery distorts the reality of God's faithfulness to His covenant that sex and marriage is to imitate. You see, the the sin of sexual immorality is so great because at the heart of 
sex, which is a unifying act, the sign of the covenant, the union of marriage between a husband and a wife, is to be a picture of God's covenant faithfulness with His people. And we're gonna, and you can see if you read this afternoon, 1 Corinthians 6, the Apostle Paul talks about this in the rest of chapter 6. And talks about how this sin is against our own body and soul. And yet, whether you are tempted to be an adulterer sexually, or an adulterer spiritually, which all of us are, which exchange the worship of God for the worship of the things of this world, whether it's the idol of control, the idol of power, the idol of comfort, or any other good gift that God has given us that we've turned into a God to be worshipped, the idol of pleasure. We are the adulterer that needs to be forgiven. And sex, as good as it is, and it is good when enjoyed rightly, as God has designed, is only a pointer to another day that Revelation 19 talks about. Marriage and sex point forward to another day, a day when all temptation will be finished. When the tempter, the serpent of old, who is the devil, will be defeated. A day when pain will be finished and life will be nothing but pure pleasure forevermore. And on that day, we, the church, the bride of Christ, will be presented to our Savior and bridegroom, Jesus Christ, radiant and pure, spotless and clean as a beautiful bride made ready. And we will experience the unending joy of fellowship with our Redeemer forever. Joy without end. And it is a vision of that glorious, unending joy that gives us hope to persevere, to say no to temptation and the fleeting pleasures of sin. To call temptation a lie and cling tightly to our Savior, trusting in Him and the power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, the power of the Holy Spirit to bring us safely home. Even so come, Lord Jesus. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Oh God, we confess that Your wisdom is life-giving. And while temptation is deceiving and adultery is soul-destroying, what you have done by sending your Son to accomplish on this earth through his perfect righteous life, and in his death, a sacrifice on the cross for such undeserving sinners like us is enough to wash us and sanctify us and purify us, and one day to present us spotless, before our bridegroom, Jesus, forever. You are worthy of all of our praise. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.